I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live Instagram podcast where we explore challenging ideas that divide us and we practice having an open mind. My name's Conrad, and if you're a new friend of the show, welcome. Returning friends of the show, very welcome to you. Now, we all like to think we have an open mind. I slipped that in there in the intro there. I like to think I have an open mind. I always think I have an open mind. Um, but I'm learning that being open-minded, it's nice in theory. I like to think that I'm open-minded. But in practice, in reality, when I am faced with a person I disagree with or someone that just triggers me, um, if I'm trying to have an open mind around that person, it's just a whole lot of me biting my tongue. And that's a pretty that's pretty unpleasant. So if that type of self-inflicted pain and torture is what you're up for, then you're in the right place. Pop in your mouth guard, uh, bite down, and let's try and open our minds and introduce ourselves to some new perspectives, some new ideas. It's not about an argument. It's about understanding. That's the goal anyway. So to the clickbait where everything begins, and then we end in then we meander off into the lands of understanding and more nuance, which is always a much better place to be. To the clickbait, you should convert to Islam. Now, did I misrepresent something? Hopefully, that's what clickbait is really good for. Uh, to help me unpack some of this, correct my assumptions where they are wrong, I have a new friend of the show. I'm going to just go in for the pronunciation here. Abdul Rahim Green. Perfect. How did I go? Yeah, dude. <laughs> don't don't, don't, you don't lie to me. Like you've been saying it all your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'll... I think you said it better than I said. I'll it. take it. <laughs> Well, I will, t I will, I will take that. Um, so, is it Abdul Rahim, yeah. or do people call you Abdul, or how does it? Well, no, I'm not fond of Abdul because Abdul Rahim means slave of the Most Merciful, whereas Abdul just means slave of or servant of or worshipper of. Yes, like, okay. Just, it doesn't really mean anything, you know. So, can I call you Abdul? No, <laughs> I sentence. just say just call me Anthony if you're really struggling. You know, just call me Anthony. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I'm. I think I can. I think I can make Abdul Rahim happen. Yeah, I think my it fights my Australian incentives to yeah. shorten every word I possibly say. Yeah. But yeah. I can do it. I can do it for you, Abdul Rahim, yeah, a new friend good, of the man. show. Thanks for joining me. Now, that accent, that accent. You, you, you're coming to me from England, surely. Yeah, I, people get confused by my accent. I think I have a bit of everything in it. You know, I use a few. Um, yeah, I, I was. Uh, yeah, I went to a posh private school, so I used to have a really posh, you know, Prince Charles type accent, which I can put it. If I'm in the if I'm in the right company, I'll sort of switch to the uh, yeah, yes, yeah, sort of like you know, I'll I'll switch to that. But um, I just I just I think I just pick up people's vibes, like their accents. Really, I just I just do that. So uh, like my kids are always making fun of me when I'm sitting with my friends who are Arab and they're, for example, their English is not so good. I start talking like this, you know, if I'm with French people, if I'm with French people, I started talking as easy, you know, like I just, it's just like, I just, that's just, so my normal sort of speaking thing is just the sort of mixture of, I don't know, everything. 
really time and place. Yeah, well, I can't yeah. wait to hear what you sound like by the end of this podcast. I, I'll, I'm looking forward yep. to it. You were like, blimey, mate. That blimey, was a bloody good yeah. interview. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <Good> on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, yeah. Now, I'm, since I'm assuming you're coming to me from England, yeah. I've been to London. Yeah, I don't know which which part uh, of mm. England you're in, London-ish area. No, no, I, I live in um, I live in a beautiful part of UK called Shropshire. It's the least populated county in UK. It's pretty much far away from everywhere. It's on the border of Wales. Uh, if I walk, sort of twenty. 20 minutes in one direction I'm in Wales uh, yeah it's 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 like a small little town with about 4,000 people I'm pretty much far away from everybody and everything as I sort of like it really <laughs> wow okay well there yeah. goes there goes my anecdote I was gonna say because I was gonna kind of come up with a, yeah. a make-believe scenario where you and I were to run into each other at the first time I was gonna tell yeah. you about this this falafel I had yeah. in London yeah. it's to this day the best falafel wow. I've ever had in my life I and I've been around the world a few yeah. through a few different places. So I was going to say, and it was called Falafel King for a plug of that. I don't know if you ever ever heard of it or no, been there. I'll find and, it. But let's. I'll find let's it when say, I go to London. Hopefully, yeah. Go on, yeah. So we run each other. Falafel yeah, King. Yeah, we run each into each other at a falafel joint. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That, that, and and I'm an Aussie just looking for a good good meal. And yeah. London's got a lot of diverse different food. And we found what I believe to be the best falafel I've ever had. Yeah. We run into each other, and and I just meet you. Yeah. The the on a surface level, we're just meeting each other. Yeah. If I'm if we're just saying, who are you and yeah. what do you do, Ab- Abdurrahim? Yeah. Who are you? What do you do? Um, I I I tell people I I'm an influencer because that's just the word that you know that is used for. I mean, if, if you're asking me how I make my money, I make my money off my Facebook. Basically, that's how I make my money, right? But I think, to, to be honest, really, I think my Instagram account sort of pretty much sum, summarizes how I look at myself. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm a Muslim. I, I'm seeking, you know, God consciousness, uh, self-mastery on a personal level. I'm a family man. I love mountain biking. I love the outdoors. Um, yeah, that's it. I mean, I happen to run a or be strongly involved in a, a charity here in the UK, uh, which, you know, its main purpose is to disseminate the message of Islam, propagate Islam, or as we use in, you know, Islamic terminology is called dawah, which literally means invitation, you could say, or calling. Um, so that probably takes up a lot of my sort of you know, I do that on a sort of really voluntary basis. Um, but yeah, so that's basically what I do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could add a whole bunch of other stuff to that. But yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, what can I <laughs> I enjoy, yeah. I enjoy that distinction between how, do we, how we make our money. Because yeah. that's the implicit assumption in the question. It's like, who are you? What do you do? Yeah. I mean part of our society is really the question, how do you make yeah, your money that's, and therefore where does your identity mm, come from? Yeah. So I appreciate that split that you've just put put in there. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, definitely. I think when people say, what do you do? That's probably usually what they mean is how do you make your money? But what do I do? Well, what do I do is I, I try to spend most of my life connecting with, with God in one way or another. That's what I guess I do with my life, actually, <laughs> you know? 
Uh, and that would include everything, you know, including wh whatever I do. Um, that's, that's what I try to do with my life. Um, unfortunately, probably quite a lot of it is mindless scrolling through Instagram feeds and uh, <laughs> I don't know what algorithm get you. Yeah, yeah, get you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately susceptible to that as well. But um, yeah, well, that just proves you're human. That's yeah, that's how absolutely. they designed it. So yeah. we've just we've just met. Yeah. I've just we've just introduced ourselves to each other. Mm. I now know mm. enough about you mm. to judge you. Yeah. Now, most new people we meet, we come across them, we might have chance encounters and we make judgments about mm. people. Listen, I'll be honest, I'm not above it, but I do want to confess it to you. Mm. So, Abdul Rahim, if, if I confess to you some of my assumptions about you, yeah. could you please correct me and correct the record and say, oh, no, or yes, that one fits. No, that one doesn't fit. How's that sound? You, okay. I'm, I might, I might, I might. <laughs> To be honest, I, I noticed you do this in your shows, and and I was thinking mm -hmm. that, uh, let, I mean, let's do it. But I, I think you know, I, what I think might be interesting is to question whether that's the way you want to actually approach people at all. That's what I might like to ask you to do: is to maybe yes. not be like that and not think like that. Um, but l let's go for it. Uh, I don't mind. No, I think. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think I think uh, friends of the show who are yeah. who are with us for longer than nine minutes at the moment. I think the the pattern and the process of this is to go. We enter conversations, and I'll spell it out for new friends of the show as well. We enter conversations with a whole implicit set of assumptions, and what we do is we then run with those. So what we try and do here on Ideas Digest, to varying degrees, we begin with those assumptions to the person so they get to say nah that one's not true that one's misunderstood oh that one actually kind of fits and then from there once we dispel some of the myths we move into exactly what you're talking about and moving beyond the lazy labeling that we often do with things like clickbait so i think you've you've kind of nailed it there and hopefully we do end up in the space you're talking about and definitely as i move through some of these assumptions flag some of them because you can come back to them and say okay so this is something that i've come across a lot or something that's happened in my journey because that gives us a bit of an insight into where you're coming from as well yeah, i get it let's go dude let's so go, conrad assumption number one <laughs> yeah, okay and we've already kind of answered that yeah you must be arabic if you're Muslim, you must be Arabic. No, no. Like it's, I think like something like 12% of Muslims are Arabs. So, uh, yeah, the most populous Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. Uh, so, and I think the biggest Muslim population in the world in any country is actually China, I think, or maybe India. So, uh, I think it might be China actually, but I mean, so, no, I mean, you, being being Muslim and Arab are not synonymous at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, <clears throat> that's good. Debunked right there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, the accent, I've got to do this just for me, yeah. just to get this off my chest. You sound British. Yeah. You said you went to a British private school. Yeah. You think you're better than me because you're from England and I'm from Australia? You look at me like I'm from a colony or something? Is no, that, I, is that I, how you I see don't me? think. I know, bro. <laughs> oh, oh, there it is. There it is. I knew you had it in you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I listen. I mean, we are. Uh, I was. Um, it's it's probably my bigger one of my biggest struggles in life, and I think I've got to grips with it. But I probably not completely. 
uh, is, and this is about self-mastery, right, is the feeling of superiority. And uh, having gone to a private, you know, English public school where literally that's where they breed the ruling elite, you know, the ones who are going to be leaders in politics and industry and everything. I mean, you are literally indoctrinated to believe that you are the best of the best. Um, and so, yeah, there is really, really is an indoctrination process where you are sort of made to believe you're better than everybody else. So, yeah, that that's a struggle. That would be a... That's a big struggle. That w- Yeah. That would be a, a collision of worlds, a British person and an American, just, just those, those two worldviews yeah. colliding. No, we're the best. No, we're the best. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, to, the, to the next one then. Yeah. You say you're a Muslim man. You must have grown up Muslim. No, no, I converted, I converted to Islam when I was huh. 20, 20, 22 years old. Depends how I you know, mark my conversion, but 22 years old. So no, I was I was not born into a Muslim family. My mum was a Roman okay. Catholic. My dad was an agnostic, um, sort of classic white liberal family, uh, middle class. Yeah. So no, not at all. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I I've done some googling, Abdurrahim. I'm eager to get your opinion on some of these things. Uh, but I don't know how surprised you would necessarily be. So after some Googling, here's what I got. A few different headlines, uh, being Muslim, and I think this one about you specifically, anti-Semitic. No, I don't know. That's just... Um, just a... I mean, you know, that, that, that comes with a whole, you know... I mean, you, we could spend a long time unpackaging that. Um, uh-huh. but I mean, no, I'm not anti-Semitic at all. I think, you know, I, I, uh-huh. I think anti, you know, being anti-Semitic is, I, I think it's disgusting. I think any type of racism is disgusting. I think anti-Semitism is disgusting. It's a disease. Uh, it's a sickness, uh, and accusations about me being anti-Semitic are just totally false. Um, uh-huh. it's just, and I notice yeah. it's, it's. It's more of a thing. I see. I see it more. The accusations thrown around in England than yeah, Australia. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and final one. Yeah. You are Muslim, and I've put this to other Muslim friends of the show. You must then be an extremist and a threat to democracy. Um, no, I, I. I think no. No. I mean, if you're. If you're. A, you know, trying to be a good Muslim, by definition, you can't be an extremist because it's something the Prophet Muhammad himself warned us about. He actually warned us about extremism. Uh, and uh, he actually warned himself, don't be extreme in, you know, practicing your religion. And uh, he, he said, the Prophet said it will destroy you. So a good Muslim will try to avoid um, being an extremist. But again, you know, this is a whole conversation that in so many ways needs to be unpackaged because I know that when you, Conrad, are talking or most Westerners, when they say something like extremist or even when they say democracy, like I, I'll always, you know, that's what I always do. What do you, What is democracy? Most people have, they don't even know what democracy is. I, I've asked untold dozens of people, right? And I remember when I used to go down to Speaker's Corner, uh, for years, I remember I, I would regularly ask people, you know, about democracy. What is democracy? The only girl who ever really defined it properly was a girl from Yemen, a Muslim girl from Yemen. 
<laughs> like, uh, so what is democracy? Explain to me what is democracy. When people say extremism, well, I mean, there's so many things that people in the West would consider extreme, even though historically in their own culture, those things may have existed in an even more extreme level and not even that long ago. So, I mean, the problem here is we're talking about all these, you know, moral and ethical variables that this is, for me, the biggest, you know, problem with all of these terms and these ideas and like these judgments that you're talking about is that they just change. I mean, not even from year to year, sometimes minute to minute, day to day, <laughs> you know, things that you were saying 20 years ago were considered liberal. Now you're considered an extremist. You know, I mean, look at this whole thing of gender euphoria. I mean, it, this is a, it's a massive conversation. You know, women have been struggling for women's rights in the West. And, and a lot of them are now up in arms with the whole idea of gender identity. And like, you're not even supposed to use pronouns like he and she anymore. Like, it's, it's madness, you know. So, yeah, I mean, no, I'm not an extremist. If you mean by that, do I believe in blowing up women and children and flying airplanes into buildings? Um, that's disgusting, you know, whether it's done by Americans or whether it's done by Muslims or whether it's done by Tamil freedom fighters or anybody, other group of people who kill women and children. Um, yeah, terror is terror and that shouldn't be done by anybody. Um, but again, you know, these labels, I, I could talk forever about this type of stuff, to be honest. Um, but do I have uncomfortable ideas that will make you feel uncomfortable? Yes, I definitely do. Yeah. Do I believe things? Yeah. That will make you uncomfortable. Do I think your reality should be different? Definitely. I do. Do I think the West is problematic? It is causing corruption on the earth in many ways. Absolutely. You would find me hand in hand with many people in the West who also, by the way, agree with that. Right. So, yeah, I have a lot of criticisms. I have a lot of um, complaints. I have a lot of things to say about Western world, Western philosophy, what the West is doing. Is it all bad? No. So, yeah, some people may consider some of those things extreme. But uh, I think, you know, if, if a people are ready to have reasonable conversations, yeah, I think they'd maybe find they'd agree with a, a lot of what I have to say and a lot of what Muslims have to say as well. In those assumptions there, what did I miss? What are some of the assumptions that you get? And if you want to go on from that, what do you think is wrapped up in those assumptions that you're talking about? What do you think when you say, what are you talking about by extremism and democracy? What do you yeah. think people are actually saying when they're lumping these labels to you? In that, well, you, funnily enough, when you said, because you're from Britain, do you think you're better from me, than me? <laughs> or translate that exact same attitude, we are from the West, yeah? Therefore, we are better than you. It just comes down to that. The West is advanced socially, technologically, politically, economically. And then we think morally. Then we think spiritually. You know, we'll add everything. We just think that because we're better at some things, we must be better at everything. You know, because we can fly airplanes in the sky and we can send rockets to Mars. You know, we must be better than everybody at everything. Um, and, you know, with that comes what we think about our political systems, our moral paradigms. And obviously that's just simply not necessarily true. 
I mean, it's just, it's pure cognitive dissonance at its, its most best level, right? Thinking that because you are an expert or because you have reached some sort of expertise on one particular area does not make you qualified in everything else. Just because the West has reached some sort of materialistic, and it has definitely in terms of science and materialism, it has reached some sort of, you could say, you know, pinnacle or dominant position, it doesn't mean that's the same case with your political life or your family life or your spiritual life or, you know, so, but that's this, that's the problem. You see, that's it. You know, there's the automatic presumption that democracy is the best, you know, system of life, even though most people have no idea what it is. And if they did know what it was, they would realize that they don't have democracy anyway. <laughs> like, there's, there's not democracy in Australia or England or America. They're not democracies. It's just absurd if you understand what democracy is. But it, these are just literally indoctrinations, brainwashings uh, that people just, yeah, we have democracy. We're the best. We're the superior system. And you savages, you know, from those backward countries. Um, yeah, that's that's what it that's what it's about, I think. So, so people listening then would go, ah, oh, I thought, I thought I knew what democracy was. I thought, I thought democracy was, you know, people have a sway over government policy by utilizing their vote. Are you saying, well, you did say Australia doesn't have democracy. Friends of the show might be listening. What, what are you talking about? So when you're talking about democracy, I guess, I guess people who think Australia has democracy. I ask any person. What is it? Any person listening. Yeah. People of Australia, make a list of the things that you want in your country, right? And then ask yourself why you don't have them. Like, same in America. Make a list of the things that you want from your government, that you want in your country. Would you like free health care? Would you? Would you like free, uh, you know, university education for everybody? Uh, there's a whole bunch of things you could say that you would like to see in your country. And, and we could find the vast majority of people would agree that we would like those things. And then ask yourself, why don't you have them? And you'll mostly find the answers are not really very good or convincing answers. They'll give you some reason, oh, because of this or because of that. Although I could find you a country that does manage to do all of those things or some countries that do manage to do all of those things. And then you have to ask yourself, well, how do you say you've got democracy? Right. I mean, in America, you, are, you essentially got two parties that basically really don't say anything different, do anything different, marginally different. It's the same in Australia. It's the same in United Kingdom. It's like I remember one philosophy said it's like giving you a choice, the kids between broccoli and Brussels sprouts and then saying you have freedom of choice. It's absurd. So, yeah, what's the categorization then if people go, well, if we're not a democracy, what are we? You're, I, unfortunately, most people are just, you know, they're, they're indoctrinated. They, it's, it's, it's what Noam Chomsky calls manufactured consent. That's what it is. Most people are not rational actors. They're not rational choosers. They, they are literally indoctrinated to believe a set of doctrines by the media. Consent is manufactured in their mind. And anyone who wants to come along and challenge those core principles upon which certain people have decided society is built, you won't be able to because you never get a real chance. Well, except maybe in podcasts like this, but how many listen to it, Conrad? <laughs> you know, 
Like, well, we got 36 people well, in there they, in the live, so that's a start. 36 <laughs> people, wow. But we've got to start somewhere. You're right. It's, you know. We're changing the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, 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 I suggest, you know, looking at Chomsky, looking at his, and maybe his book's a bit heavy going. Look at the documentary. There's a documentary, Manufacturing Concerns. It's a really good place to start to really, to see what, what's really going on, right? And, and think about whether you really have democracy or not. Not, not that I'm a socialist or a communist, by the way. It's just ideas on this at so on point. But anyway, yeah, go on, sorry. Yes, no, and I, yeah. and I think um, that's probably what we'll, what we'll explore yeah. is that as soon as you, this is the knee-jerk reaction, as soon as, as soon as you're saying something like, and we'll probably come to this towards the end, as soon as you're saying something like, we're not a democracy and criticizing the system that we currently have, let's say here in Australia, people will then go, well, you're a fascist then, you're a communist then, you're a, all these synonyms for what um, people will lump together as communism, socialist then, or something like that. But, but I think I'm sensing a, a deeper, more specific critique, especially with name dropping uh, thinkers like Chomsky. Um, some people might have already categorized you then if you're dropping Chomsky as going to some kind of socialist lefty, but we'll, we'll kind of come back to the political half of it. What, when we come back to the clickbait, that I made up. I just I just looked at a few a few of your little articles, and I noticed that, and a, and a few videos that you've um, sermons you've given sermons. Is that what you call them? I'd call them for a Christian background. I call yeah, them a sermon. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't call it uh, anyway, public yeah, public talks. Yeah, yeah. And when I come with you should convert to Islam. Yeah. You yourself, like you said, converted to Islam. Talk to me about perhaps one of the key ideas mm. that has brought you into going from, I, I suppose you just mentioned being Catholic mm. into being Islam and why I suppose you converted to Islam. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, Conrad, I like the, the, there's so many videos out there of my story of like how I convert to Islam. So if people are really, really interested in the whole like full story, you know, they can go and listen. There's one in an hour. Yeah, I, listen, I, I listen to it in half an hour. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you're really interested, you can listen to it. So I mean, to some, yeah. I mean, you know, I was on a journey. Um, I still am on a journey, but I was on a journey of trying to understand what's the purpose of life, what's the meaning of life, why are we all here? And for me, I guess that journey ended. You know, it didn't end, but it sort of, I don't know how to describe it. But that particular part of the journey, I guess, ended with reading a translation of the Quran. Uh, I, was, I was really convinced that this is the closest thing that I'd ever come to a book that was from God. Uh, I'd been through Buddhism and magic and philosophy and kind of just about everything to be honest yeah yeah even a, maybe not i didn't know about chomsky in those days but yeah i mean you know i i had very left wing leaning half sister and brother-in-law and but i mean you know i but went through a whole lot of stuff um but yeah i mean for me i read a translation of the quran and that was i really felt this is it this is something that i really seems to me that it's from God. Um, it's the closest thing I'd any anyway come across. Um, and I guess that was really, that was it, the beginning of my journey. It, it took me quite a while to sort of get from that position to actually start practicing Islam in any real sense. But yeah, that's really a brief summary of it. Mm -hmm. Very brief. So 
having gone through like that journey you describe, uh, you you know, I was traveling for a couple of years, and that's that's kind of the common journey. People going, yeah, you know, I'm exploring Buddhism or yeah. Hinduism. I'm in Bali now, trying to find myself. What is God? What is the purpose of life? It sounds like you had a similar type of journey. When you opened the Quran and you looked at it and you went, oh, I think this could be true, and I think God, quote unquote, God is in here. Can you talk to me about? When you use the word God, how would you define that? And what is it that you found in the Quran that like maybe even that first domino that dropped that made you go, there's something true? Yeah, that's, you know, that's such a good question. Honestly, man, um, I, don't, I don't say it to pl- flatter you, but it really is a good question. Um, you know, like what, what, you know, what does God mean to you? Because a lot of people say like, even when, you know, like, it's just so interesting. Like I worked in the um, London Central Mosque for about five years and I was looking after all the visitors and, you know, talking to them about Islam. And this one guy comes to me and he says, you know, like, I love Islam. I love Muslims. I love everything about the way Muslims live their life. I, he said, I want to be Muslim. I want to live my life like that, but I don't believe in God. <laughs> so like, I always ask people, what do you think I said to this guy? You know? And, but I said to him, well, what sort of God is it that you don't believe in? Because it's like, I thought this, I don't think this guy's problem is he doesn't believe in God. I think his problem is his concept of God. And he said, well, I don't believe there's some old man with a beard sitting on a cloud. You know, well, I said, well, I don't believe in that God either. Right. So that's a really interesting question. Like, what do I, you know, what do I, you know, what do I mean by God? Right. Um, so that that's really good. And I think, I think for me, that is probably the single most powerful reason why I believe what the Quran says, because it resonated so completely with my, I would say both instinctual and intellectual musings about what I think God must be like and it seemed to me that <clears throat> the Quran was like confirming that uh, I certainly dismissed the idea that God was some sort of big old man that was just ridiculous um, any religion that told me that God became a man whether it was Christianity you know Jesus is God or Hinduism Krishna is God or any other religion that told me some man or some creature is God I dismiss that completely i would you know i i i wouldn't even if i came across something that said that i just put it down and say that's just that can't be true because uh, that was for me i figured out that that just didn't make any sense um and i think that essentially in many ways the quran was telling me things about god that just resonated with the things i had thought about and concluded and what i felt deeply um, and I think that was the, the main thing. So I, so I guess what, what does the Quran say about God? I suppose you could really summarize it with, um, I, I guess, you, Surah Al-Ikhlas, <clears throat> which is a very short chapter of the Quran, um, summarizes it. It says in Arabic, Kul huwa Allahu ahad, Allahu samad, lam yulid wa lam yulad wa lam yukullahu kufuwan ahad, which means... Uh, say he is Allah. Ahad means one and alone. Ahad means one and alone. Yeah. 
Allahus Samad, which means that Allah is the one upon whom and upon which everything depends, whereas God doesn't depend upon anything or anyone. Lam Yalid, he is not born, wa Lam Yulad, and he does not beget. So he's nothing gave birth to him and he's not the begetter of anything or anyone. Uh, and I guess that's the real icing on the cake. And there is nothing that can be likened unto God. So like almost whatever you can imagine, God is not like that. God is, yeah, God. I mean, I, I guess ultimately it means God is not like anything in this universe. God is not like anything we can really imagine. We can, you know, have some, I guess, vague notion about some core things about God. But it's always going to fall short of what God really is. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think that summarizes it. Because you're you're talking there between as <clears> we <throat> this word God wrapped up in that yeah. is a very common word that many different religions across the world will use, different cultures, uh, different countries, and wrapped up in that word, even especially within Protestantism and Christianity, there's uh, lots of different types of interpretations of when someone says God, it means something. And it's, I think we do a disservice when we assume everyone's meaning or pointing to the same thing and hearing you kind of unpack this very difficult, let's say entity that people call God and you're calling God here. Um, when, when you're unpacking that, it's almost like you're touching on sort of the, these unspeakable elements. You're saying, Oh, it's kind of like, kind of like this, but not like anything you, you know. And so I, I said, I guess I'd say to that, if if this God is something we can't really know, but it, it's we can point out in these indirect ways, and we can know God in certain ways, how have you come to know God through Islam? That's really that's a really good question as well. Um, I wow, okay, I should be able to answer this quite easily. Um, <laughs> I think that. I can sort of look at my life as a Muslim almost in maybe two parts, right? The first part was a very intellectual, rational approach to Islam. Very intellectual, very rational, very literal, yeah? Um, And I suppose, in a sense, those were my sort of most, like, rigid... I wouldn't say extremist. I don't want to say extremist, although even by my own present day standards, I might look at some of the things I said and did back in those days. And I would say, yeah, I was a bit extreme in some of my things that I said and did. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my approach was very, very, uh, it, you know, like an in- vigorously intellectual. I was trying to prove God to myself intellectually, right? Um, and pro- and try to prove the existence of God through reason. And I came to, I, I guess I came to a stage where I realized I couldn't do that. I, I, I don't, you can't. You can't prove, you can understand that the existence of a creator of this universe is the most rational conclusion to come to, looking at our organized, systemized universe I don't think there's another rational conclusion to come to, really, except that there must be some creator being that has brought this into existence. But you can't prove it. Yeah, you can't really prove anything, I realized. So I guess for me, 
a change came where my my for me what i if you could say proof if you can even use that word is experiential it's my experience of living islam it's my experience of being a muslim and you you know you can put those down to all sorts of things you know um simple things that i, I you know like you know you pray for something and your prayers get answered things happen that you know it's like you know it can't be coincidence you know you know it's just not possible that this happened at this time in this way and it was a coincidence you 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 see the other thing is you see something unfolding in your life you see you live your life a certain way and then you see something unfolding in front of you it's almost like a plan is being unfolded in front of you. Again, I can understand people would just think it's delusional, but then if you're actually experiencing it and you're realizing that I needed to go through this in order to reach this, I needed to go through that in order to get to that, um, and a whole bunch of other things that I guess really that's what being a Muslim is about, learning to trust in God, learning to rely on God, learning to love God, learning to, yes, to fear God as well, uh, to be conscious of God, and that when you do those things in your life, you see what happens to you and you see what happens in your life. And ultimately, I guess that is more convincing than anything. That's mm -hmm. why it was interesting. I was listening to one of your guests. I don't remember her name. She was used to be a Christian and like she became an actress or something, right? I listened to some bits and pieces of what she was saying. Yes, yeah, and Alice. I yeah, believe. yeah. Yes. And she was like some hardcore atheist. I didn't, I, to be fair, I didn't give her a full hearing. I was- A self-defined happy atheist. Yeah, yeah, I listened to that bit. And, but it was interesting that what she said is that when you asked her about people's experiences, right? What do you have to say about that? What do you have to say about people's you can't, like, how can you question people's subjective, real subjective experiences, right? So even as a Muslim who is, would like everybody to become Muslim and happy to try and can, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, convince in a bad way, but explain why Islam is the truth to people. When I meet someone, a Christian, who says, well, Jesus came into my life and my life changed. It's like, how can you argue with someone's real subjective that's the experience they have and i know that is the most powerful thing that is the i mean i, mean, I can hmm. give them maybe different ways to think about it but ultimately it's those experiences that you have that are the most real things and are the most convincing things to a person individually so for me hmm. that's what really makes me convinced about islam is that i live it and I see it working in my life. Yeah. It sounds like you're describing some kind of formula to life that you began to apply. And it's like, let's just go back to Conrad grade eight maths class. Here's just the algebraic equation. You just follow this and you'll get the right answer. And I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm following the formula and I just keep getting the right answer. Is that kind of what you're describing there? You're going, okay, I'm trying to understand it intellectually. It's not quite falling into place, but I'm just doing it this way. And now the way I see my life and the way my life is unfolding subjectively 
it just seems to be saying it's just all the evidence seems to be pulling you this way, even if you're not completely comprehending it. Is that that's kind of what I, I'm gathering? I think that? you know, like it's a it's a really nice analogy. I really like that. But if you extend it a bit further, right, just to talk about like algebra as a system of trying to you know uncover certain facts and truths and come to certain results, right? Yeah, I mean, not just one equation. It's like the whole system, right? If you spend enough time with that system, right, and then this magical world, right, begins to open up to you. Like, I'm always trying to, I'm not really fond of maths. I'm not good at maths. But, oh, I, I really am in awe of like mathematics and and like and I always try to tell my kids it's beautiful right mathematics is beautiful <laughs> right don't trust me don't say it's bad please learn it it is beautiful and uh, yeah because this whole it, it unfolds so many things and it is like that it really really is but it's like anything you, you see people often think of faith Unfortunately, I think that, and I'm sorry, you know, for anyone who's Christian, they're going to look at it as if I'm like being nasty to them and attacking them. But this is what I believe, right? Um, Within the Christian world, if we can even say that sort of exists anymore, right? Faith means believing something impossible. Because Christian faith demands that, that you believe that the eternal, infinite, self-sufficient creator became a limited, finite, temporary, needy human being. And that's by definition impossible because something can't be infinite and temporary at the same time. Something can't be needy, right, and self-sufficient at the same time. Something can't be ever living and never die and then get stuck on a cross and get killed. It's That's impossibility by definition. But... You know, you have to believe that apparently to, 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 to be a Christian. I'm sure Christians could argue with me and this and that. But I think from a rational perspective, and I'm not even going into the Trinity, this is a problem. So when we talk about faith, people think, oh, I have to believe. So I have to suspend all reason and I just have to believe this thing. But I think generally that's not that's not really what faith is. Most of the time, faith is really trusting seeing whether something is worthy of you putting your trust in it like at the end of the day i have faith in you know we have faith in medicine we have faith in our political systems we have faith in mathematics like there i mean mathematics is really interesting because you can't rationally prove the basis of mathematics it's taken if you think about it right numbers can you prove numbers can you actually prove them? If, no, they exist. We use them and we get results, right? And because of those results, we, we sort of adopt this faith in the process of mathematics. And yes, yeah, so from that perspective, that's what faith is for a Muslim. Um, faith should be, I guess, I would say should be there's something similar. It's not, there's nothing really necessarily irrational there, but you know, when you do it and when you practice it and when you implement it, you see it working. Um, yeah, I, I guess you're absolutely, mm-hmm. you, you gave a really good example there. Yeah. So that's a, that's good. If I can, if I can, if I can sum it up there. So when you mentioned earlier that you have some uncomfortable ideas, being a Muslim, 
in the West, in England, and uh, in this political climate, whether it be what feeds some of the assumptions I've, I said at the top of the show, what are these, I suppose, what are these uncomfortable ideas or, or, or one or two key ones that you have found really helpful being a Muslim, but that people might look at and say, that's uncomfortable? Yeah. Well, number one, I guess the most, I, I, okay, I mean, Okay, one of them is this world is not really that important. That's the first one, right? Life is not about this life. Life is actually all about what is going to happen to you when you die. That is the first really uncomfortable assumption, right? It's not that you can't try to live a good life. It's not that you can't try to build a beautiful planet. You should do that. Why not? It's good. Right. Um, but that's not what life is about. Life is a test. And the real truth about our life is that it's actually about what's going to happen when you die. So that's the first, I guess, really uncomfortable assumption. The second that follows on from that is that the materialistic philosophy is a lie. It is a lie. You are not just a material being materialism is a lie. The idea that wealth equals happiness is a lie. Now, you don't need to be a Muslim to figure that out. Lots of people have figured that out, right? Buddhists, Hindus, philosophers, atheists, they figured that out. But it is the very premise and foundation of Western ideology is materialism. It basically is pure materialism that economic well-being is the root of success and happiness. And that's just a big fat lie, right? Um, that's uncomfortable. And everything that goes with that, by the way, Conrad, it's, it's not just that. Like, obviously, you can understand that with that comes a whole lot of other stuff that just has to be chucked out of the window. Um, so foundationally, this is the problem. On its very foundation, Western, the Western philosophy, its approach to life, is wrong. It's a lie. It's dangerous. It's destructive. It is destructive. It is destroying our planet. There is no doubt about it. It is this religion of materialism and consumerism, I call it a religion, that is destroying the planet in which we live. It's not Muslims in Bangladesh, right? It's not farmers in India, right? It is the Western consumer culture and philosophy that is destroying our planet and destroying our life and causing the death of untold numbers of human beings and creatures, right? So that's the second thing. I think that, that that's the, yeah, the third thing perhaps is um, morality, ethics. Um, it is not based upon what you feel. It's, it, it's based upon what God has revealed. Good and evil, right and wrong is what God says is good and evil and right and wrong. And any, anything else that claims to be, and this is, I know this is a bold claim. This is, again, a very uncomfortable claim, right? Um, but it's a challenge. How can you have anything that you could claim to be truly objective morality unless it is anchored in some transcendental truth? Or just to translate that into simple English, right? Without some clear revelation from God, 
that demarcates what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what are we left with? We're left with human beings just making up for themselves as they go along what they want to do, what they don't want to do. And, you know, just please think about the reality of human beings and how we behave and what we're motivated by. And it's not it's not nice. It's not comfortable. It's not pretty. It's not productive. Uh, yeah. And so all of these things. Right. And and in many ways that that I, I guess would undermine some of the basic, uh, you know, uh, how could you say philosophical underpinnings of democracy? The idea that human beings collectively have the right to choose what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. No, they don't. Um, that's, that's not correct, right? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a say in who governs us and how they govern us. And, and yes, there, there is a scope for that. But these fundamental principles of right and wrong and good and evil should not be left to human beings. That is something that we need to take from God. So I think those are really the uncomfortable truths, I would say, that, that really, I guess, in many ways, fly totally in the face of the foundations of Western society, culture, civilization, ideology, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Because as you unpack some of those, I guess, the theology of how we see the world, what our place in the world is, where God or what God is in this world, you're kind of, you're kind of painting that picture. And to one of the earlier ones you said where it's, it's life is not about life now, it's about life later. And many Christians might hear that and go, yeah, I totally agree. Jesus is coming back. It's all going to burn. This earth's not for long. And and many sort of more conservative Christians um, might wholeheartedly kind of agree with you. And some of the pushback I've given to <clears throat> that I've put in front of some of, of some of those Christians, which I'll put in front of you now, they'd go, well, I suppose you're talking about something that people on the left who critique the West heavily saying, yeah. Consumerism is destroying the planet. You, um, to, the consumption and commodification of everything is is raping raping our environment. It's destroying our culture. We're now mining people for data to change their behaviors and manufacture consent and do all these things. And to that, people would say might agree with you there again, but then say, why should you care then? What like why should we care if climate change is uh, because of our excess consumption and then the pollution impact on the planet. If it's all, if, if, it's, if this life doesn't really matter, then why should I care about the environment? Why should I care about the homeless person down the street? Don't worry, mate, you're going to die. And hopefully you've led a good life and God will take care of you. And so, I mean, why should we care? How do we get to charity and altruism and care for the environment from a worldview that says it, this life really doesn't matter? Yeah, that's a good question. And the answer is pretty simple to that, really. It's because... Like from the Islamic perspective, what you do here is going to determine what happens to you when you die. So absolutely the way you behave in this life is crucial. It is absolutely crucial. And look, like the fact that we believe and we know that there is a life to come, there's a day of judgment, there's a paradise, there's a hellfire, 
does not mean we are still not living in this world. We have kids who we care about, who we love. We have neighbors who we care about, who we love. We live in countries that we care about and we love our country. Right? You know, we, we still care about those things. We still care about what the life of our children is going to be like. It doesn't mean that, you know, yeah, I'm going to, you know, the reality of everything is that there's going to be a day of judgment. I still have to eat today. I still have to drink, right? So, like, it doesn't detract from that basic reality that we still live in this world. But to add to that, it's how you behave, what you do that is going to determine what happens to you in the life to come. So, therefore, caring for the environment is not something you do because think about it, right? Do you care for the environment just because there's a crisis, just because global warming's happening, just because, oh my God, you know, my, my, my whole city is going to be underwater in 50 years' time. Oh, I better do something. Or do you do it because intrinsically that's what you do? Because whether, like the Prophet Muhammad said, for example, he said, don't waste water when you are making your, you know, ablution. So before Muslims pray, like, you know, we, we should be in a state of purity. So let's do, we make these ablutions. He said, don't waste water. Even if you are taking it from a river, even if there's a river beside you, don't waste. So this attitude of not being wasteful is irrelevant, whether you have a lot or a little. It's just an attitude that you should have. Caring about the world around you is an attitude that you should have because that's the way God wants you to be. There's another beautiful saying where the prophet said, look, if there was one day, if you knew tomorrow was going to be the day of judgment, plant a tree. Why? Why? Like, it's all going to end tomorrow. Why should I plant a tree? <laughs> the reason is because that's what you are. That's the way you are. That's the way you should be, you know. Uh, and it, that's what it's about. It's about a way of being, right? It's about your intention, your thinking. So absolutely, no, I, I believe that um, this dimension of realizing that how you behave and what you do is going to determine your outcome in the life to come is actually one of the strongest motivators for you to be consistent in your moral behavior. It's a very, very good, powerful motivator for you to be consistently moral, not just moral by circumstance, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, I, I, you know, one thing does not contradict the other at all. Mm -hmm. So your meaning and significance and the importance of this, this life is determined because of what will happen after as judged by God essentially is kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing from you there. What is, mm, I, what I, what I'm saying is how you behave here is going to determine what happens to you there. Mm -hmm. So that's, so then yeah. when, when you, uh, when you spoke about before, then only God can then determine what is good and what is evil yeah. and it needs to be a clear revelation so we so we know otherwise it seems like you're saying we we can't know so we need a guidebook we need instructions to to let us humans mm. work out what's right and what's wrong and i want to i want to yeah. draw back to some of the things you said earlier when you're talking about you, there was something inside of you that clicked mm. with when you opened the quran and starting reading it and there's something 
in your life that you subjectively witnessed that change when you followed this path, the path of Islam. And so how do you connect those two positions where one, where one says, we don't know what, what's right yeah. and, and we can't determine it and we need a clear guidebook. Yeah. But the, the quote-unquote uh, liberal or the progressive might say to you, but we can't read anything except through a lens. So that's how we get people picking up the Bible and holding signs saying God hates fags. And then you get people um, picking up the Bible again and saying, no, no, God says love everybody. Mm. And so they would point out saying, you can't not interpret it through a lens. So how do you square those two ideas that saying we need a clear guidebook and we can't let humans just based yeah. on emotion determine what's right and wrong and God can do this. Mm. But then what would you say to that progressive person that says, but look at the people say in um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Al Qaeda, ISIS, reading the same book and coming to conclusions that you've said yourself is horrible and it should just shouldn't, that should never exist. Mm. Okay, that, that's an interesting question. But um, I think, look, I think that, of course, it, it everything is a little bit more nuanced than just reducing it to that. It's more nuanced than that, right? So, um, yeah, on a very basic level, that what I said is correct. But, like, obviously, the whole situation is more nuanced. So we do have some, look, we believe as Muslims that we've been given some faculties by God, right? So life is a test, uh -huh. right? Life is a test. Are you going to follow the right way? Or are you going to follow the wrong way? You're going to take the path of truth or are you going to take the path of falsehood, right? So if we, if we can agree on that, whether you do or not, but just from the point of view of understanding what we believe as Muslims, like, so from that are going to come some, uh, some things we sort of have to sort of accept that must be real like the path of truth must be there must be a way to understand what is truth right and you must be able to you know know what is falsehood right so yeah we do have a we we have been given some faculties by god to understand these things on a basic level so we have reason right reason does allow us to some extent, to be able to understand some of these truths about life. So we have that process of reason. We also have something that we call in Islam fitra, uh, which means a sort of innate, natural disposition. I, I, it's hard to really, I don't think there's something maybe comparable uh, in Western ideas, maybe conscience, you could say, but it is like a natural instinct that we have. Like, I guess like animals have instincts. Well, we have instincts, but some of those instincts are spiritual instincts. Some of those instincts are spiritual insights about God, for example, right? So they're not complexed. Reason is a very useful tool, but it is limited, right? There are certain things we can understand, about God through reason. There are many things that we can co comprehend through science, right? But it's interesting that within science, for example, there is something called chaos theory. Now, contrary to what people think, people think chaos theory is the idea that everything is chaotic. No, I mean, chaos theory actually teaches that there is order underlying everything. But the complexity of that order is so great that we can never understand it. 
And so that's what they call the butterfly effect, that we don't know that the movement of a wing of a butterfly in a, in a jungle in South America is not going to cause a cascade of cause and effect that is ultimately going to lead to a hurricane in, 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 in Florida, right? We could never, you know, it's impossible for us as human beings to get to that level of detail. We couldn't, we, it's just impossible, right? And so this is what I would say is that there are levels of complexity where human reason is never going to be able to figure out what is the right balance of do's and don'ts, prohibitions and allowances, uh, what is good, what is evil, what's right, what's wrong, and these type of things. There's a level of that that is beyond the capability of the human mind. The only being that has that oversight of that level of complexity is God. That's, I guess, how I would. And so for those types of things, this is what we have to resort to revelation. You know, I, you know, we, I, I could sort of go into that by lots of, you know, examples and and discussing the minutiae of, you know, human laws. And But I mean, just look at us, look at the criminal the so-called criminal justice system in the United America. I was just listening to, you know, Russell Brad's latest uh, podcast, right, about Biden's promises and how he's going to reduce the prison uh, population in America, right? But look at the whole justice system. Look at the whole way it operates. I mean, what sort of justice system is it? Is it justice? Who really, like, what's the purpose of having a justice system? Surely its fundamental purpose is to protect the, the innocent people who haven't committed a crime. That's the first thing, right? And the second thing, perhaps, maybe to reform the criminal. But if you have a system that is neither protecting the innocent people nor reforming the criminal, what have you got? It's what's the purpose of it? Yet this is what we have. We, we have these flounderings where we're trying to figure out what well, we just incarcerate people and, you know, call it humane although we're not really seem to be benefiting anybody except people who run the prisons and make money from it, I suppose. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is what I'm talking about, the levels of complexity, right? So there is a level where when it comes to these type of social issues, when it comes to these, uh, you know, these demarcations of morality and ethics, at the end of the day, human beings, we are we don't have that level of insight. We don't have that level of knowledge to be able to determine those complexities. And that's why I believe that we believe we need guidance from God to do that. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're pointing at our, I suppose, the quote unquote best of our Western civilization and mm -hmm. what, we, what we would call as justice in America, locking someone up in this in this very inhumane way to make profit from privatized prisons and things like that. You're pointing at that as evidence of saying, this is what we're going to come to. This is what we always end They up. would call it humane, right? As opposed to maybe, you know, uh, lashing somebody. Oh, that's barbaric and that's brutal, right? Oh, prison is humane. Okay. Um, I mean, we could have a long... You see, the thing is here, right? This is a really good example. We could have a long argument about that. What is worse, physical damage or psychological damage? What is the purpose of a justice system? What are you achieving? What are you actually, what's the result of all of this, right? The, the discussion, if you think about it, is endless, right? 
because the variables are so complex, we, we can't really measure them. When you talk about a justice system, then, what does justice look like from you, a Muslim man's perspective, when you're looking at the justice system? If you were to say, I think justice should look like what? Like a, a Christian might look, well, some Christians might look at it because a Trump grade Christian might look at it and say, yeah, like that's justice. And then you might get a maybe mystical or progressive Christian saying, no, no, justice is rehabilitation. Justice is understanding the life that this person has led that's led them there and putting in the resources to rehabilitate the person if that is possible. How would you in that scenario say um, God's justice would, what would look like on earth? I, I think that really what it comes down to is that everyday ordinary decent people can go about their lives without fe feeling fear without feeling that yet yeah, that's really what it is you know that they can just live their lives and they they're not going to be worried about thieves and murderers and rapists and you know uh i don't know all of those things that's ultimately what it comes down to is that you know, people can live comfortable, decent lives and, and get about their productive lives. So I think in, in the result, that's what it, you know, has to come down to. Um, now, you know, like there are different ways you could achieve that, right? You could for sure, like in theory. Or you could just wipe them out, uh, like death penalty style. Yeah. I mean, I, I see this is the thing is that, you know, our arguments about, you know, different things could be endless. And and how do, and here's the other thing is, how do we account for all the different variables? So the point I was going to make is that, look, for example, if everybody is really prosperous, if there's more than enough food for everybody, if there's more than enough, if everyone's got housing, if everyone's got free, you know, medical care and this, you know, like, what is the likelihood of people stealing? What is the likelihood of, uh, you know, hmm like people demanding bribes in the courts, you know, uh, like if everyone is really prosperous, the likelihood of those things is, I mean, you could guess it's going to be a lot, lot less, but what about when those things are not there? What, what, what about when society is not so prosperous? What about when things start going bottom up? Then what happens, right? So, I mean, this is the thing is you have all of these variables. So yeah, for example, you could say in Western society, we happen to be, materialistically quite prosperous at the moment what happens when hmm. that's not the case anymore what happens when hmm. you know things change dramatically or if things change dramatically Anyway, you know, I, uh, are you pointing <clears> out <throat> a thin veneer of civility that's built on the fact that we have enough so we don't steal? And are, are you alluding to, maybe I'm reading into it, are you alluding to that potentially not being enough moral foundation for society I, to just rely yeah. on the fact that we are just prosperous? Yeah. And if in the future we aren't so prosperous, we we will find ourselves okay. not so moral and not so considerate. Is, Let, is that kind of something you're? Let me about? let me pose a potential you know a potential future that I don't think is that potentially far away, right? Let's say, which I, I do believe that um, climate change, man-made climate change, is real. Its effects are going to be pretty catastrophic. Um, imagine that it really does happen that some of the largest cities in the world are underwater, 
the habitable land for human beings shrinks considerably. Um, massive changes in climate, crops failing, uh, starvation, water running out, all of that type of stuff happens. Um, you could argue that they're already preparing for that right now. Mass surveillance, taking away of basic civil liberties, right to protest, right to make a, a noisy protest. In England now, the laws are already, if not passed, being passed. That you can protest, but you mustn't be noisy when you do it. I mean, can, that sounds like the most British law ever. Serious, yeah, there, no, but no. I mean, it's it's madness. Like no more horns. Yeah, but I mean, you know, this mass surveillance. This, like, this is something that we've seen that with this, you know, this virus. And uh, one of the first things that happened in UK was, and I'm sure it, the same in Australia, was a raft of really draconian legislation being passed. They allowed the government to do all sorts of really draconian things. Um, you know, coming into your home, taking you away, forcing certain things upon you. It's in there in the legislation, right? Um, but is it really about that or is it about something else, right? Is it about this impending potential climate? So what, what's going to happen? It's just about finding different ways now of controlling people. And those ways of controlling people are making people's lives less and less free. Um, that thin veneer is not, you know, it's already pretty much fading fast. Actually, 9-11 pretty much showed you how thin the veneer of human rights and freedom and all that type of stuff. They love talking about how thin it was. The Patriot Act. Look into the Patriot Act. Look at the consequences of it. And then you see how really thin the veneer of these liberal values that, you know, people just take so much pride in, how thin it is, how easily broken it is. Um, it's very unimpressive. It really is. I, I, I don't mean it in a, I don't mean it in a sort of gloating way. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoy living in a part of the world where I can practice my religion freely. I can go down the street, talk to people about Islam, even though most of them are not Muslim. I know there's lots of things I can do in the West that I couldn't do in a Muslim country, even as a Muslim, right? Don't get me wrong. I do not hate everything about the West. Absolutely not at all. Actually, I am really sad that these things are really disappearing fast. They are. They're becoming extinct. Um, but at the same time, I know it's inevitable um, because it's it's a castle built on sand, to use a gospel analogy, analogy that you might be familiar with, right? It is a castle built on sand. Or the Quranic analogy is it's the house of the spider, you know, the weakest of all houses, you know, Beit al-Ankabut, you know, the house of the spider, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, these are I, these are my thoughts on this matter. I mean, you know, I, look, at the end of the, at the end of the day, Conrad, I, I won't look it. It simply comes down, I suppose, at the end of the day to a matter of faith. And like here are reasons why I believe the Quran is from God. The Quran gives certain guidance for us in my personal and public life. I believe we should follow them because, you know, it's from God. Can I sit down and justify and rationalize every single one of them? No, I probably can't. Do I even personally within myself 
feel uncomfortable about some of those things. Yeah, I, to be honest, I probably do due to the way that I've been brought up. I still may find it hard to reconcile some things in, you know, within myself. But at the end of the day, a Muslim is someone who surrenders to God, submits to God. I believe that whatever I know, what do I know compared to God? What is my knowledge compared to God's knowledge? And sorry, Conrad, to just go back to one thing, I won't take up too much time. You know, like the one other point that you mentioned that I just do want to sort of talk about is interpretation. Yes, that is, you know, this is a really good point. It's a totally valid discussion. Um, you know, the whole issue of <clears throat> interpretation. But I would say that within 1,500 years of Islam being, you know, as from the Quran-based Islam being, you know, on this earth and having, by the way, a thousand years of that plus being a very, very powerful, productive civilization, by the way, that was living mostly according to, uh, you know, the, the teachings of the Quran, where science flourished, where arts flourished, where trade flourished, um, you know, you there is a very, very strong tradition of understanding how the religion should be interpreted. And there is a very strong body of scholarship. Uh, and, and most of the time you find, comrade, it's that when people depart from that, you know, that body of learning and sort of go it along, go it alone, ISIS style thinking that, you know, they can just make interpretations themselves any willy willy any willy nilly way they like right and just pick up the book and interpret themselves that's where things go wrong right um just like by the way i guess if someone picked up you know some statute books of law in england and had no training in law and just sort of randomly started applying whatever laws they felt like yeah, you can imagine, right? It would be chaos anywhere with any system, right? So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, human beings are human beings. You can have the most perfect legal system. You can have the most perfect laws, which we believe we have, which is from God. But it still needs human beings to decide to act upon them in the right way. I mean, I'll be honest. One of the things that terrifies me the most is the idea of a bunch of ignoramuses extremists taking the Quran and then misapplying those laws just in order to fuel their own desires and their worldly ambitions, like I pretty much believe ISIS. That's all they were, a bunch of gangsters, yeah, using Islam as an excuse, as a battering ram to just take from people what they want. Pretty much that's what they were, right? Um, yeah, it's pretty horrific. Um, but that doesn't mean that's, you know, that's the system. It's not the system. That's not the way it is, so. You're pointing to Islam as not just what, not just a book, yeah. not but a a whole history of tradition and interpretation, Absolutely. and um, it it takes um, takes more than just picking up as a layperson this book and going, oh, I'll just try to do what it says. You're saying it's it involves a deeper level of understanding and commitment and learning to to kind of unpack it. Again, it's it's nuanced, right? There are some things that, yes. are, you know, some things that, are, you know, they're not difficult to grasp, right? Don't lie. Keep your promises. You know, be good to your neighbor. You don't need a lot of, a lot of interpretation to understand some of those things. Like we're all going to get it, right? 
But when it comes to how should you divide inheritance, you know, how should you apply certain, you know, certain laws or certain prohibitions or no, then that absolutely has to operate within a legal framework and has to be, uh, you know, done by people who are experts in that field. It's not just for any person to come along and make their interpretations, right? So, I mean, you have these levels, right? There's a level at which the Quran speaks to everybody. Everyone can understand it. It's very simple. It's very plain. It's very too easy to understand. But there are other levels where they're more complex and it takes, you know, different degrees of knowledge and understanding. And some take a lot of study, lifetime of study, to be able to grasp the complexities of it. So you have those different levels all within that same structure. So speaking of those levels and those yeah. different layers of complexity, is Islam for everybody? Is it for me? Is it for your neighbor across the road? Is it for everyone in England, everyone in Australia? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the only people Islam is not for is if you're arrogant. And when I say arrogant, I mean, well, I mean something specific. Um. You know, arrogance means to reject the truth when it comes to you. Uh, and what is, that's a whole discussion. What is the truth? When do you know something, the truth, you know, like, but listen, if you're a sincere tr truth seeker, there's something there for you. hundred percent it's there for you. Um, well, to that, yeah. to that point then, does everyone need to be Muslim in order to encounter this truth that you're saying when truth comes to you, is that always dressed up in the religion of Islam? I, I don't look, I'm not going to get philosophical about this. Um, and I could give a more nuanced, you know, uh, discussion. Um, but in simple terms, the Quran says in the deen and the which means that most certainly the way of living, the way of life with God is the way of life of Islam, of, which means surrendering to God. So I think the Quran says it very clearly. That verily, the way of living with God is Islam. I, that's the best answer I can give, I think. And yes, and Islam as defined as surrendering to God. Yeah. So some, some people might hear that and go, oh, I do believe I surrender to God, even though I have never read the Quran. Yeah. They might hear that and, and go, huh. And maybe they do. That actually, that, that this is, uh, again, this goes into nuance, right? That, that, that it yeah. actually happened in the time of the prophet, that a man said, well, you know, this is what we were upon even before. Like he was a Christian uh, before. So he, he just like recognized that what the Quran was saying just totally resonated with, you know, the way he had been living, you know, his life. So there is no doubt that some people will absolutely do their best within the framework of what they have available to them to live their life like that. Some people, their framework may be the Bible. Some people, their framework may be other scriptures. Some people, their framework may be, I don't know, it depends upon what is available to people, right? So, I mean, that's the nuanced dimension of it. The nuanced dimension is that, yes, there may be many people in their life who are sincerely trying to find the right path. I, I believe that anyone who is truly sincere, truly sincere, 
and is a true truth seeker, then they are on the right path. That's that's what God ultimately wants from us. What can we do except ultimately be really sincere and be open to seeking the truth? But I I don't think it's a simple. Uh, I don't think it's an easy thing, Conrad. I really don't, because it demands self discipline. It demands so it really, you know. And I would say that, like, this is the more I study, the more I realize this, that self-mastery is, in a sense, the key. Um, I, I, you, you really have to have this firm grip of yourself and make sure that you're not ruled by your whims and your desires and your passions. And, and, and when you study in, for example, psychology, something like cognitive dissonance, like, like you begin to realize how often, in fact, the whole premise of your podcast, right, and how it starts is these judgments we make about people. So I think that you need all of that, but, I, you know, you need all of that, that real determined attempt to find the truth, then I think you're on the path, you know, wherever you, whoever you are, wherever you may be. Um, yeah. You may have already done this as we finish up, but if you're a door-to-door salesman, just in your little local town there, yeah. and you're selling stocks and shares in one idea, what is that idea? Is it this idea you've spoken about of self-mastery? Is it this idea of surrender? What if you got one? You got one set of stocks to sell. Yeah. What's it going to be? I I would really like to explain. I I would just simply say why there are very powerful reasons to believe the universe has a creator, why this creator is one and unique alone, and why the Quran is the book that has been revealed by that creator and why Muhammad is his prophet. That is, if I had, that's it, I have the chance to sell one thing, it would simply be that. Thanks for taking so much time to explore so many ideas. Definitely a lot of different avenues to go down, um, but I, I better I better let you go. Is there anything you might want to say or or add to as we finish up? No, I don't know. I've it's, it's been you know what can I say? Um, what I'd like to do is thank you, Conrad. You know for your podcast for what you're doing. Um, I, I haven't actually taken the time to find out what you believe and what your ideas are. <laughs> and I, I, I want to... You'll never know. No, no. You've you got to share that with us. So, like, one day we, we want someone to, you know, ask you all of these questions. Uh, but, you know, it is a noble endeavor, really. And it's a beautiful thing when someone says, I want to listen to people's ideas that I don't feel comfortable with because I want to understand where they're coming from. And that is really good. That is really good. That's really positive. And, and um, I think absolutely we need to listen to each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to understand each other. We need a lot more love in the world and a lot less hatred. That's for sure. And a lot more understanding and a lot less pre-framing and judging people based upon our often false prejudices. So what can I say? I'd say, like to say thank you to you for just running this podcast, Conrad. It's good on good on you. Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome. Thank you so much right. for, for joining me. If people want to uh, catch you, see where you're up to, follow your work, you say you, you 
Well, yeah. you make your money on Facebook, but you also your Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. Like yeah, Abdurrahim Green official on Instagram, Facebook. Again, Abdurrahim Green. A B D U R R E H W E M. That's Abdurrahim. Uh, yeah, or YouTube. Very little YouTube channel. Although, like some of my favorite stuff is on my YouTube channel. It's like a bit of mountain biking stuff that I love. <laughs> you know, my walks in the countryside and stuff like that. You that's know, but great. no one's really interested in that, but I love it. And uh, yeah, that's it. So um, thanks. Awesome. You know, thank you so much for inviting me on. And um, I... no worries at all. Um, we will. I also enjoy mountain biking, just waiting for a new mountain oh, bike and maybe one day. In this England, is a whole we'll other conversation. A, oh, you've got to. If you, <laughs> this is a whole, please come. Our number two. I'm going to look after you. You come here. I am going to take you around and show you some beautiful trails. So let me know when you're coming. Conrad. I can't wait. It's my invitation. I can't wait. <laughs> I, I do enjoy traveling and I do enjoy couch surfing. So I'll see All you soon. All right, dude. Good stuff, man. Um, <laughs> if you've made it to the end of this episode and you just disagreed with absolutely everything, but you're an hour 24 in and you're still here, then congratulations. You have successfully completed the Ideas Digest way of existing Send me a DM saying, listen, that was a struggle. I disagreed with everything. And I will send you a golden emoji to very coveted, highly, very valuable, spend it wherever that accepts it. And that will show my appreciation to you. If you agreed with everything in this episode, also send me a DM, but I'll send you a bronze emoji. It's pretty easy to listen to someone you agree with. Mm. Um, so wherever you sit, thanks for listening. And I will catch everyone in the next episode.